On October 29, 1996, Maria Catalina Palomino was murdered in her apartment in Houston, Texas. Known as Catalina, she was 78 years old. She was a deeply religious woman who spent her days volunteering at her local church. Her only relative was her nephew, Juan, who lived nearby and spoke to his aunt on the phone every morning. Catalina didn't have much money, or anything in the way of material goods really. She just had her car, a late model Honda. Her apartment in the Green Arbor Complex at 10601 Sabo Road was rent controlled and affordable. She insisted on moving out of her nephew's house a few months before her death as she wanted to give him and his wife some privacy. Catalina would write checks for small sums of money rather than carrying cash for both safety and ease. One of her proudest possessions was a letter from the Vatican thanking her for her work for the church. My name's Danny, I'm a true crime fanatic from the UK. That's Danny with an I, just to be clear. I'm non-binary and I use they them pronouns. This is my first podcast. I'll be looking at the evidence in this case, whether the verdict and the punishment were fair, and taking a look at the wider innocence movement. If you have any questions or feedback, please email me on danny10601 at outlook.com. I'll put the email in the episode notes. Around 9.30 on the morning of October 29th, Catalina's upstairs neighbour, Eva Mondragon, heard screaming coming from her apartment and ran downstairs, along with two boys who had stayed over the previous night. Eva shouted, are you okay, into the apartment, and heard a voice reply, I'm okay, I just fell and hit my head. Realising that the voice did not sound like Catalina, Eva ran over to the management office and made them aware that something was wrong. The managers ran towards the apartment with her, with one of them flagging down a maintenance man named Keith and asking him to jump the patio fence to check on Catalina. He did, and he found her body by her front door, surrounded by blood, dirt and broken pottery. Catalina had been hit over the head with a ceramic object and then stabbed repeatedly. Her car keys and wallet were stolen, but her car wasn't. Her front door was locked from the inside with a keyless deadbolt, meaning her killer or killers almost certainly entered and exited the apartment through a screen door on the patio, which was pulled from the frame and left hanging and subsequently fell onto the ground. Jennifer Jeffley, a 15-year-old girl who'd been staying in the upstairs apartment with Eva, was questioned by police officers investigating the murder who quickly realised she was lying to them about what had happened that morning. They continued to question her, and the day after the murder, Jennifer told the officers that she had helped to plan and carry out a robbery on Catalina with two male accomplices, and that even though the murder was unplanned, she had opened the kitchen drawer for her accomplice to take out the knife after they had hit Catalina over the head. Jennifer's fingerprints were found on the glass patio door to Catalina's apartment, which was how the killer or killers entered and exited the scene. To touch this glass door, Jennifer would have had to jump the patio fence outside the apartment. Catalina's wallet was identified as being missing on the day that she was murdered and was found a few months later behind the fridge in the upstairs apartment in which Jennifer had been staying. Jennifer confirmed that her confession was true in the presence of a judge and two months later she confirmed again that it was true in front of her lawyer. The police officer's attempts to find their accomplices were unsuccessful. The names Jennifer gave, Ernest Swatson and Tim, aka Slow, appeared to be fictional. Jennifer was tried for capital murder as an adult and she pled not guilty, but her lawyer didn't deny that she was involved. He argued instead that police had treated her unfairly and that, quote, things got away from her that day, end quote, but that she was a good girl really. She was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Her alleged accomplices were never found. In some ways this might seem like an open and shut case. While it poses serious questions about the appropriate length of a prison sentence for a minor and whether it's ethical to try a child as an adult, there isn't really anything to suggest that Jennifer was innocent of the crime, or so you might think. Despite not denying involvement at her trial, 
or in her appeal, Jennifer appeared on Crime Watch Daily in 2017 proclaiming her innocence. She said that the police typed up her statement and she signed it so she could go home, but she didn't read it, and that during the murder she wasn't there, she was at a friend's apartment nearby calling a family friend. She also claimed, falsely, that there were no fingerprints matching her at the scene, which is a claim that's been repeated by her advocates. This media appearance is, to date, the only public declaration of actual innocence that Jennifer has made. And it must have come as a surprise to Houston PD, because in 2014 Jennifer's mother Jackie merely told an officer that Jennifer's sentence was unfair as she had two accomplices who were never caught. Jennifer's case was recently taken up by podcaster Bob Ruff on his Truth and Justice podcast. Initially, I was taken in by some of the arguments being made. Jennifer sounded like her life had been very sheltered. It was hard to believe that she could be involved in something so horrible. Maybe she could have been coerced into falsely confessing, and it did seem like she wasn't there when the murder occurred. There were certainly a few red flags, however. It was obvious that Jennifer had lied in some of her statements to police, and while initially I put that down to a naive 15-year-old girl trying to portray herself as a helper, the same explanation can't be applied to her more recent lies, such as the claim that her fingerprints weren't found at the scene. She also claimed during Crime Watch Daily to have received a letter telling her that, quote, the DNA in her case is not the DNA that belongs to her case, end quote. The meaning here is ambiguous, but it seems to suggest that the wrong DNA samples have been mistakenly filed with her case. She's never been able to produce this letter. She also told Bob Ruff that in prison she had been, quote, encouraged to participate in homosexuality, end quote, which she listed as a negative behaviour alongside fighting. But Jennifer's been married to a woman while in prison and had same-sex relationships with a number of other women. I spoke to Jen's ex-wife, Nika, and from what she said, Jennifer didn't need any encouragement. You'll hear more from Nika in a later episode. I wasn't sure why Jennifer was being so dishonest with people who were trying to help her. Then a listener to the show, Sandra, filed a FOIA request and got the case filed herself and uploaded all the documents in the case, not just the ones that were being released by Bob Ruff. They're all available online at jenniferjeffleycase.wordpress.com. I'll put the URL in the episode notes. I realise that the picture looks very different when the case file is viewed in its entirety. A good example of how looking at the whole case file gives a different picture is the time of death. The medical examiner's report states that Catalina was pronounced dead at 9.15am. This would likely mean that paramedics arrived on scene shortly before 9.15 at perhaps 9.12 and so would have been called probably between 9.05 and 9.10. Obviously this is very, very approximate. Eva ran from her apartment to the manager's office after hearing Catalina's screams while she was being murdered. The process of that would have taken less than two minutes. If the ME report is correct, then the murder would have taken place at approximately 9 to 9.05 a.m. Now that time of death would back up the alibi Jennifer has given. She says she received the page at 8.45 and left to call her family friend at Janet Dorsey's, where she made three phone calls, two to the friend and one to the phone company about Eva's phone. Now if that's true, it seems unlikely that Jennifer would have had time to involved in the murder at 9am. But when you look further, there are some problems verifying the timeline. For starters, the 9.15 time of death doesn't fit with any of the witness statements. In Jennifer's first statement, she says she heard Catalina screaming at approximately 9.20. That's five minutes after the medics had apparently pronounced her dead. That also means, if we believe Jennifer, that she wasn't at Janet's during the murder at all. Although as we know, Jennifer's statements aren't exactly reliable. June Sage, Catalina's neighbour, says a black female knocked on her door at around 9.30 and a few minutes later 
she heard a, quote, blood-curdling scream, end quote. Maintenance man Keith says he noticed the crowd outside the apartment at around 9.45am. Not all witnesses gave a time, but those who did timed the murder after the apparent time that Catalina was pronounced dead. Then we have Officer Pika, the first police officer on the scene, who stated that the 911 call was at 9.42. He was dispatched to a DOA, dead on arrival, at 9.44 and arrived at 9.55. Bob Ruff argued that the ME report was more accurate than the witness statements and suggested that the paramedics had pronounced Catalina dead and subsequently realised that she had been murdered and then called the police at 9.44. In Keith's statement he does say that the paramedics asked for the police to be called when they realised it was a murder but he doesn't suggest anything like a half an hour delay. That would require us to believe that for almost half an hour these trained medical professionals failed to realise that Catalina had been brutally beaten and stabbed. And we'd have to believe that everyone had somehow forgotten that the screen door had been broken in. But even if we accept that theory and accept that Catalina died before 9.15am, Jennifer still wouldn't have a solid alibi. We don't actually know when Jennifer was paged, or even if she really was paged, and we don't know when or if she called anyone. Records for that information didn't exist and Jennifer told police officers she had deleted the page when they asked to see it. The friend whose apartment Jennifer says she was at, Janet Dorsey, has a long criminal record and appears to have been a heavy crack user. The friend who she called, Craig Peters, also has an interesting criminal record including drug possession which we'll dive into more later. So while Jennifer may well have gone to Janet's and spoken to Craig, the only evidence we have for that is the word of a known liar in Jennifer and two drug users. Now obviously people who use drugs can be reliable, but if they were both using at that time, which the evidence indicates they were, that would have impacted their ability to recall events and times. Also, both Craig and Janet had a motive to lie to protect Jennifer, who referred to them as her wannabe daddy and second mother. After going back and forth with some listeners about the time of death, Bob subsequently looked in the DA file on the case, which was something that Sandra had asked for and hadn't yet received, and found an EMS report stating that the ambulance was dispatched at 9.46am. That doesn't quite match the times given by Officer Pika, but it's pretty close and it fits with the witness statements. When you look at the evidence as a whole, not just the ME report, it's clear that the time of death couldn't have been 9.15 and that Jennifer did have time to be involved. Bob accepted this and said this on the podcast. So why am I taking the time to explain this? Bob corrected the time of death, we got to the right one in the end, so doesn't that mean there's no harm done? Well, unfortunately no, not really. Bob's listeners heard the argument that Jennifer couldn't be involved because of the time frame, and many of them believed that. And once people had reached the conclusion that Jennifer had to be innocent, she couldn't be involved, they were willing to dismiss and ignore evidence against her and focus on blaming other people who were near the scene. And they continued to do this even after Bob confirmed the 9.15 time of death had to be wrong because it didn't match the EMS report. In real-time investigations, people draw early conclusions that turn out to be incorrect, but those conclusions lead to people putting their psychological blinders on, and that's how genuine wrongful convictions happen. Here's an example. Leslie Molseed was murdered in Yorkshire in 1975. She was just 11 years old. A man named Stefan Kishko quickly became the prime suspect after some local girls told police that he had indecently exposed himself to them. His idiosyncratic behaviour made police more suspicious. Leads pointing away from him were ignored. Stefan had significant learning disabilities and after three days of questioning he confessed to the murder, believing this meant he would be allowed to go home. He retracted his confession at the first opportunity, but he was charged, convicted of murder and served 16 years in prison. Throughout that time he maintained his innocence, refusing to participate in rehabilitation programs or admit wrongdoing. His psychiatric review stated that he suffered from, quote, delusions of innocence, end quote. 
Eventually, a judicial review was granted that looked at whether his conviction was safe. During that review, the girls who claimed he exposed himself to them were re-interviewed and admitted they lied, quote, because it was funny, end quote, and were given criminal cautions. Three police officers who were part of the original investigation were arrested and charged after it was alleged that they had hidden evidence that could have exonerated Stefan. His conviction was overturned and he was released from prison, but he died 18 months later before he received compensation. In 2006, 31 years after Leslie was murdered, a DNA profile from semen found at the scene was finally developed and an arrest was made of the real killer, a known sex offender named Ronald Castry. Mistakes happen in real-time investigations. People are led down irrelevant rabbit holes, people focus on parts of a case while ignoring others and end up failing to see the wood for the trees. Those problems may be inevitable when a case is being investigated in the days, weeks and months after it happens, but they should be avoidable when looking back over a case which has already been investigated and been to trial. Many people are now absolutely convinced that Jennifer is innocent and are desperate for her to be exonerated, despite not having read all of the evidence in the case file or the whole of the trial transcript, just certain excerpts from it. But why have Jennifer's claims of innocence been taken so seriously? Many prisoners claim to be innocent and people don't generally believe them. A common talking point is that Jennifer wasn't the sort of person who would do something like this. The family were very religious, having been Jehovah's Witnesses, and they've been victims of a double tragedy. There is some truth to this. They were JWs, although that was a few years before the murder and Jackie had been disfellowshipped. And they did go through two tragedies. Jennifer's oldest brother, Thomas, was murdered in March 1994. He was in an unlicensed bar, known for drug transactions, and was caught in the crossfire of an argument over a $5 pool bet. Two brothers, the Jones brothers, were sentenced to life in prison for his murder and for the murder of another man during the same incident. Jennifer's other brother, Daniel, was diagnosed with cancer in July 1994, and he died in 1995. Jennifer missed a lot of school while she was caring for him and her mother was working. There's no disputing that the family went through terrible, tragic events and that seriously impacted on all of them. But there's also another side of the family's backstory that hasn't really been told. That's the side of the story showing the Jeffrey family's close association with criminals and sometimes their own criminal behaviour. I'm not revealing this information lightly and I accept that some people will think it's wrong to do so. I think it's wrong to allow a mistaken picture of Jennifer's life to be propagated unchallenged. All of the information that I'm going to be discussing is already publicly available if you want to check it. This isn't a doxing campaign of secret information. In 1979 and again in 1980, Dave Jeffley, Jennifer's uncle, pled guilty to burglary of a habitation and theft of a vehicle. There isn't any more information about these charges, but it's worth mentioning that Jennifer said in her confessions that the motivation for robbing Catalina was to steal her car. Jennifer listed Dave as one of her emergency contacts when she was arrested, and he was listed ahead of her mother, so presumably they were close. Between March 1994 and April 1995, Karen Jeffley, Jennifer's sister, was convicted of theft twice and forgery twice, culminating in her being sentenced to 60 days in jail. Jennifer has another uncle as well named Robert Jeffley, and he's no stranger to criminal behaviour either. In March 1993, he was involved in some kind of gunfight with two men, during which one man was shot in the stomach, one man was shot in the mouth, and Robert was shot in the arm. But it gets a lot worse. I'll just give a trigger warning here, I'm going to be discussing some quite serious intimate partner violence. I'll read from an appeal decision in his case to give you the facts. Quote, Either late on the night of June the 11th, or in the early morning hours of June the 12th, 1995, Gloria Zachary, Jeffley's common-law wife, was in her home with their son and Thomas Brown, a friend of Zachary. About midnight, Zachary investigated a sound at the front door. As she looked through the front door window, Jeffrey shot her in the face with a shotgun. He then entered the house with two guns and threatened Thomas Brown, who pushed the barrel of the gun away and ran from the house. Jeffrey shot at Brown and missed. Jeffrey then took 
to the home of one of Jeffley's friends. Jeffley was arrested the next morning. Jeffley, his mother and another witness testified that before the time of the shooting, Jeffley was upset because Zachary would not allow him to see End quote. So Jennifer's uncle was convicted of the attempted murder of his partner, Gloria Zachary. Oh, and remember the two men who were involved in a shooting with Robert? The man who was shot in the stomach was a relative of Gloria's. Milton Zachary. Jennifer's sister Kim ran away with Jennifer shortly before Catalina was murdered. Her boyfriend at the time was Richard Paul Smith. He had a juvenile record for assault and as an adult has committed felonies including drug possession and illegal possession of a firearm. At the time of Catalina's murder, Jennifer's sister Karen was in a relationship with a man named Stephen Burks with whom she had her first child in July 1995. Interestingly, Jennifer's other sister, Kim, is now living with Stephen and goes by the name Kim Jeffrey Burks. Stephen has an interesting criminal record. Between 1990 and 2005, he was convicted of possession of cocaine, theft, drug possession and forgery. During that time, he also had a number of charges dismissed for theft, forgery, aggravated robbery, unlawfully carrying a weapon, evading detention, resisting arrest, interference with the duty of public servants, deadly conduct, assault and drug possession. And there's more. In August 1993, Burks was shot in a drive-by shooting. And then on September 7th, 1996, the month before Catalina was murdered, Stephen was attacked by two of his criminal associates. David Earl Davis and Cedric Deshay Holland stabbed, shot and beat Burke severely before throwing him in the trunk of their car. Both were convicted of aggravated robbery and attempted murder. Burks was left blind after the attack. This horrible incident happened just two weeks before Karen Jeffley gave birth to their second child. Burks claimed to have had $6,000 in cash stolen during the attack. We can only speculate as to why someone with a history of drug possession would have such a large sum of cash on his person. Janet Dorsey, the friend who Jennifer said she was visiting that morning to use the phone, has a lengthy criminal record for theft, crack possession, fraud and other charges. Remember, Jennifer described her as, quote, like her second mother, end quote. Eva Mondragon, whose apartment Jennifer was staying in, was a dancer and had a conviction for lewd behaviour. A FOIA request revealed that this was a mass arrest of dancers in the club she worked in and could have been for something as minor as not wearing large enough nipple pasties. Bob Ruff has speculated that Eva was a full-service sex worker, but she wasn't charged with selling sex, and unlike one of the other dancers who was arrested, she wasn't required to go on a HIV awareness course. Jennifer's lawyer accused Eva of being, quote, probably a prostitute, end quote, at trial, as part of his attempts to attack her character and, frankly, to slut-shame her. The prosecutor objected as there was no evidence for that assertion and the judge agreed and upheld the objection. Since that one conviction, Eva has never been in trouble with the police again, according to any records that I've found. She seems to have made something of her life. The same can't be said of the two boys who were staying in Eva's flat the night before. They're referred to by Jennifer as her boyfriend, Youngster, and his brother, K.D., their real names are Pharrell Walton Smith Jr. and Kenneth Driver. Pharrell had a criminal record for burglary, assaulting family members, car theft and possession of drugs. In 2008, he died while carrying out a home invasion. During this incident, a woman was pistol whipped and then Pharrell was shot by a resident of the home. Kenneth Driver has a criminal record for assaulting and stalking family members in ways which have become increasingly severe over time. He's also been convicted of car theft and burglary. He's currently in prison serving a life sentence having been convicted of murdering his ex-girlfriend's baby. Obviously the majority of these charges were after Catalina was murdered but KD and Youngster did already have juvenile records at the time. Alistair Craig Peters, known as Craig, is the family friend who Jennifer says she phoned that morning. A look in the case file makes it clear that he was more than just a family friend. Jennifer described him to police as her quote wannabe daddy end quote and listed him as next of kin ahead of her mother also referring to him as her stepfather. And he also has an interesting criminal record 
including convictions for possession of drugs and arrests for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, evading arrest and assaulting family members. But by far the most significant charge in relation to this case is one for sexual assault on a minor. At this point I'll give a further trigger warning for discussion of Craig's sexual assault charge and the nature of his relationship with the alleged victim. I won't go into a lot of detail but I want to put that warning out there. Craig was arrested in May 1996 and indicted in July 1996, three months before Catalina was murdered. The charges were dropped, quote, at the request of the complaining witness, end quote, two days after Catalina's murder and the day after Jennifer Jeffley was arrested for the murder. Recently, Bob Roth interviewed Craig and asked him about this charge. He confirmed that the alleged victim in the case was Jennifer Jeffley. Craig said that all that had happened was that Jennifer's mother, Jackie, believed that they were, quote, messing around, end quote. She told police of her suspicions and they took no further action. And when it was dismissed, Craig and the family, quote, got back like we supposed to be, end quote. But that just can't really be true. Craig was indicted by the grand jury, which doesn't make him guilty, but it doesn't happen without some evidence beyond a mother's suspicions. Unfortunately, Harris County has declined FOIA requests for information relating to this crime, so I can't give any more details. It does put a comment Jennifer made in her interview with Bob in a different light. Quote, I was more conscious of the type of crowd that I was hanging around. They were fast, but the girls were faster. We had grown men hitting on me. In Tennessee Colony, we didn't experience that. End quote. The allegations against Craig make his description of his behaviour on the morning of the murder very strange, very troubling and possibly illegal. Remember, Jennifer said that Craig paged her so she went to Janet's to call him and he gave her advice on her situation. Craig's version of events is slightly different. He told Bob Ruff that Jennifer paged him first. Quote, she had paged me, I had my baby mama with me, I was going over Highway 3 to visit a friend, and yeah, she paged me, and I paged her, and, and then she called me, and I told her that I'll pick her up, family friend, she always hung out with us and everything, and I had told her I was going to pick her up on the way back, end quote. Is there any innocent explanation for Craig offering to pick up and hang out with the girl he had been accused of sexually assaulting, regardless of who paged who first? I can't think of one. I haven't been able to find out exactly what the law was in Texas at that time about whether Craig would have been legally allowed to contact Jennifer, and unfortunately none of the files in the case are available online or by request, so we don't know what his bail conditions were in regard to contact, but it's certainly not a good look. I also don't understand Craig's statement that when the charges were dismissed, he and the family, quote, got back like we supposed to be end quote if someone accused you of sexually assaulting their child would you want to continue being their friend i know i wouldn't oh and remember the other charges against craig from that time that were dismissed well his lawyer for those charges and for the sexual assault charge was mike monks guess who jennifer's first lawyer was mike monks now we know that's not a coincidence as bob recently confirmed on his podcast that craig introduced jackie to monks I also don't believe that it's a coincidence that Jennifer and Jackie dropped the allegations against Craig the day after she was arrested. We can't prove this, it's unlikely we'll ever know, but one possibility is that they may have agreed to drop proceedings in exchange for Craig arranging her legal representation. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Okay, so Jennifer's family and her friends weren't squeaky clean, but that doesn't make her a murderer, does it? Well, no, of course it doesn't. But it shows that the picture being painted by her family and by her advocates is not accurate. Jennifer wasn't sheltered. She was surrounded by chaos and by quite a lot of crime. She told Bob Ruff that, quote, Houston took her fast, end quote. But her life was absolutely chaotic long before the family moved. And it was getting worse. The month before Catalina was murdered, Jennifer's grandfather died, Karen's partner was almost murdered, Karen had her second baby, and Jennifer was apparently being contacted, or still in contact with, a man who'd been accused of and indicted for sexually assaulting her. 
At some point, probably in October, while all of this is going on, Jennifer and Kim had an argument with their mother Jackie, and both of them left and stayed elsewhere. We don't know exactly when this argument was, but we know it was on or before October 23rd, as that's when Jennifer was reported missing. Different accounts of what this argument was about have been given. Eva told police Jennifer said her mother put her out of the house because she didn't want to follow her rules, and Jennifer also told police that the problem was due to her mother's rules. Jackie told Bob Ruff that it was to do with rules as well, but Jennifer told him that it was an argument between Kim and her mother, and it was specifically about boys. I don't think there's any way to know for sure what the argument was about, and the contemporary accounts all indicate that it was about rules, so that's probably what caused it. With that said, I don't think it's insignificant that Jennifer suggests it was about boys and that Kim had a baby in June 1997. That would put the start of her pregnancy at around September 96, and that would certainly be something with the potential to cause a big row. Jennifer was living in a chaotic situation and she was deeply traumatised. She lost two brothers in quick succession and she spent a lot of time at home missing school caring for Daniel while he was dying and her mother was working. She was held back in school as a result of this. The impact that these tragedies and that missing school would have had on her still developing brain could have been very significant and I believe that it was. And that's the context in which I believe Jennifer was involved in murdering Catalina Palomino. There are many potential mitigating circumstances which could apply under the law here in the UK, but those aren't really on the cards in Texas. The mandatory sentence for capital murder is life in prison. Despite being just 15, Jennifer was tried as an adult. Presumably the prosecution was using the threat of a harsh sentence to pressure her into giving the real names of her accomplices and into taking a plea deal to testify against them. It didn't work. Jennifer won't be eligible for parole until 2037. I began this episode by setting out the scenario of how the murder happened based on the witness statements given to police and what was testified at trial. But those witnesses gave different statements and some of the statements didn't fit together with each other. In episode 2, I'll take a deep dive into all the witness statements, look at where they agree and where they don't, and hear from some other witnesses as well. Thank you for listening to episode 1 of 10601 Sabo, Sheltered. And thank you to everyone who's helped me work on this case. Check out the case files at jenniferjeffleycase.wordpress.com and if you have any thoughts, remember to email me at danny10601 at outlook.com. Thanks.